you should find, you found Isaiah to you. Everybody's looking at me like, shut up, Rogers, let's go. <laughs> so let's pray and go. Thank you, Lord, for the day, and thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your love, Lord, that you have made a way unto, uh, for us to come unto you, Lord. And uh, We don't want to forget you, Lord. We want to keep you in the forefront of our mind. We want our lives to demonstrate our love for you. So as we study your word tonight, Lord, help us to remember the authority that you have. Help us to remember that there's a day coming when you will set all the wrong right. And uh, help us to set our, find our peace in you. I ask the Lord you'd help me to rightly divide your word tonight. I ask that you would guide our time. Ask Holy Spirit that you would just teach us what you would want us to hear. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So you'll recall last week we began the book of Isaiah, and you guys are fairly seasoned Christians as far as I know. Everybody here has probably at least heard of the book of Isaiah. You know that he's a prof- uh, he's a prophet. Um, he would be his book, Isaiah, would be classified as one of the major prophets, and that's not because it's more important than the minor prophets. It's because um, it's bigger. It's sixty-six chapters, one of the biggest books of the Bible. Psalms, one hundred and fifty chapters, but Isaiah, right up there, with sixty-six chapters. And um, it's kind of neat how it breaks out. It's very similar to the way the Bible breaks out. The first thirty-nine chapters of the book of Isaiah. Talk about judgment and the law and and um, God coming against His people, and then the last twenty-seven chapters of the book of Isaiah speak more toward grace and lean more toward God's mercy, which is exactly how the Bible breaks out. The first thirty-nine books—that's the Old Testament, that's the law—and then the, the last twenty-seven books is the New Testament and the life of Christ and displaying His mercy, and so. What we learn is that the book of Isaiah is uh, a vision. It starts off by saying the vision given to Isaiah. It's not multiple visions. This is one vision, and it's in great detail is what it is. And really, it's the first five chapters of the book tell us what the vision is. Tell us what God is saying against his people, Israel, and the issue that he has with them. Everything is summed up in the first five chapters And then the other 61 chapters are a breakdown of those five chapters, of the vision. They get into great detail. And so uh, we're in the midst of, as we're into chapter 2 now, um, what that vision is that Isaiah had. And uh, uh, the first chapter was rough. Last week we talked about, he was talking about hammering the people, comparing them, like we said on Sunday, to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was likening them to, they had, had prostituted themselves out to other gods. They were selling themselves to false gods. Seems kind of silly when you put it in that phrase, in that terminology, but that's so often what we do, is, is we, we cheapen our religion. We, we chase after the things of this world. We, we look for the shiny things in life, and, and we get caught by those lures, and it really cheapens our faith. Our faith needs to be directed to the God of all gods, the King of all kings. And so anytime you're reading the book of Isaiah and you go, those people were stupid, just remember, you would do the same thing, and in fact, you have. We've all done, we've all done what the Israelites have done. So as we get into chapter 2, after kind of railing on them all through chapter 1, it's almost like God needs a break. He's like, all right, I need to stop yelling at my kids. Parents, I'm sure you felt like that. I just, I need to step away and breathe for a second. 
And that's almost, almost what God is, is doing here at the beginning of chapter 2. It's not that God would ever need a break from anything. He never tires. But he wants to remind us, and, and throughout the book of, his, of Isaiah, anytime he speaks of judgment, there, if he follows it up with mercy. He follows it up with grace and compassion. There's always a way back. There's always a, a remnant that will be saved. And, and, and so, yes, there is judgment coming, but... And there's always that but there, and that's what verse 2 through 5 of chapter 2 kind of are. It's the, hold on a second, let's remember in the midst of what I'm railing on you for, there is light to be seen. Verses 2 through 5 of the book, or of chapter 2, are going to talk about this, what's known as the millennial kingdom. It's that time which has yet to happen, that Jesus is going to come back and rule and reign on earth for a thousand years. He's going to set up shop there in Jerusalem and, and he's going to rule the earth from there. And, and it's a time that we as believers are looking forward to. We shall rule and reign with him. We talked about that when we discussed the rapture um, in uh, the middle of August. So these, this, the first part of this chapter is speaking of that thousand-year reign. Just a couple notes before we get into the, the text. The prophecy which is given here from, you know, and, and continues through chapter 4, is directed toward Judah, to the, toward the, the southern kingdom. And its capital, Judah's capital, is Jerusalem. So it's going to talk about Jerusalem and Judah quite a bit. It's interesting also to note that Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, are repeated in Micah. In Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it's identical. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. They were working at the same time. And it's interesting that the Lord would give them both the same identical word-for-word message given to us written in the Scriptures. Uh, I've said many times, if the Lord repeats Himself in the Word of God, it's worthy of us bearing note. Well, He's repeating Himself. It's in Isaiah and in Micah what we're going to read now. So Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. It says, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, again to the south. And here's where the vision continue, or picks up. It's verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, and just so we all understand, the latter days, we're referring to the time of the Messiah. This, we're not in the latter days yet. We're in the church age at this point. There is a day coming, the latter days, the time of the Messiah or the millennial kingdom. Just to kind of back that up and help us to see this, God actually says this to Mary as she is pregnant with Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, speaking of Jesus to Mary, he says, God says, He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, we believe because he's resurrected from the dead, he is already ruling and reigning. He's in complete control. God is entirely sovereign. But there is a, a, a time where Satan has been given the, um, the room to roll, rule this earth. But there's a time coming when when that will be taken back, God will take that back, and Jesus is going to rule and reign the, on the earth. So it says, again, verse 2, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days 
that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. So in this millennial kingdom, in this time when Christ has returned to the earth, the capital of the world is going to be Jerusalem. Who, are, who would think that? Consider the, the strong towers of today. Consider, you know, Washington, D.C. and London and, and um, uh, Berlin and, you know, the, the various uh, powers. Um, I'm trying to think of Russia. What's Moscow? Yeah, you know, think of these, these strong cities that would make good in the eyes of the world, world capitals. And that's not going to be the case at all. The day is coming when Jesus will return in Jerusalem. He's saying his mountain will be above the other mountains. He's going to be exalted above the hills. Other nations are going to bow down to his authority. All nations shall flow to it. All the world will bow to the reign of Jesus Christ. I love verse 3. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, Zion's an, uh, the utopian name or the, 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 the paradise name, the perfect name for Jerusalem, God's reign here on earth. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from and here's our capital city from Jerusalem. So in that day, and I, I'm looking forward to this, we're going to take part in the millennial kingdom. We shall reign with Christ for the thousand years. In that day, we're going to say, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. How cool is that? A pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I'm guessing it's going to be probably around the, the feasts, just like they did we would, we would return to Jerusalem just like they did on the feast days, and we would go celebrate the feast. But when we go, we're going to be more excited about going to Jerusalem than going to Disney World. You know? We're going to, and, and, and people get excited about that. You know, it's, a, it's an exciting thing. But this will be more exciting to us. Why? Because Jesus is going to be there. How cool is that? He will teach us his ways. It's, we're going we're gonna to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and just like he taught his disciples in his resurrected body, he's going to sit with us and teach us his ways. I, I'm sorry, but I get geeked out by that. That sounds amazing. I, I, I envy the guys that were on the Emmaus Road. You know what I'm talking about? After the resurrected, after Jesus rose from the grave and and the disciples were walking um, toward Emmaus, and they were just like, what do we do now? The, Jesus is dead. What, what happens now? And suddenly a stranger comes along and starts talking with them, and they walk along the way, and they would do that in that day for security reasons. And they're walking and talking, and all of a sudden they're like, you know, they're, they're like excited about the conversation. They're talking about the things of the Lord. The stranger to them is revealing um, truths in Scripture that they never understood. And all of a sudden... It clicks. They're, they're walking with Jesus. And they're like, you know, and, and, and they get super excited about that. That's the, that's the emotion that stirs my heart as we read. There's a day coming when we're going to, where he's going to teach us his ways and we're going to walk in his paths. Imagine walking around Jerusalem. I, I, I have yet to go to Israel. I would love 
to someday go to Israel. We tried to get a trip together for November this year, and everybody was just like, no, we can't afford it, and neither could we. It's an expensive trip. But imagine going to Jerusalem and Jesus going, yeah, this is where my house used to be. And this, and this is where, you know, uh, you know the, the pool uh, that I healed the blind man. And this, was, and this is where the upper room was. And imagine Jesus being your tour guide, walking around Jerusalem, you know, as he's teaching you from the scriptures and just, I'm sorry, that's better than Disneyland. It's, it's going to be this intimate, glorious moment. He'll teach us his ways. And the result, we shall walk in his paths. Meaning, there will be no question that we will follow His ways. There'll be, it'll be obedience the way that we've always intended it. I, I know that we, we all struggle with this, that, that feeling like Paul. The things I want to do, <laughs> I don't do. And the things I don't want to do are the things that I do. And, and Paul, you know, Paul, the capital A apostle, struggled with that throughout his life. We struggle with that all the time, but in that time, we'll walk in His ways with perfect obedience, the way that God would have intended. And the word of the Lord will come from Jerusalem, the capital of peace. Zechariah chapter 8 says this about that time. This is, this is, think about this thought, considering how the world is going to come against the Jewish people and against Israel, that's been promised to us. Consider once we are in the millennial kingdom and Jesus is rightly reigning, what this says in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, in the millennial kingdom, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages uh, of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, Will we will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. In that day, the, the Jewish people will be elevated, and ten men are going to find a, a Hebrew brother, and they're going to grab him by the skirt to say, hey, take us with you to Jerusalem. Show us. We've heard that God is with you. Show us what we need to see. Cool thought. And we shall walk in obedience. So verse 4. This is a verse that, if you're familiar with eschatology, the study of end times, you've You've probably heard this verse before, um, but there's some interesting insight that we can glean from it. It says, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Those are both um, things that you would use on a farm, a plowshare and a pruning hook. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So the war colleges, those things that where, where the, the great men of our nations um, study how to do battle. They, they simulate things and they plan things out and they have strategies for different events and different ways of things that happen. Those in the millennial age, that's not going to happen. They're not going to learn war anymore. All of the weaponry, um, their swords, like it says, and spears are going to be Change. They're not going to have need for them anymore. Why? Because Jesus will be reigning. Now what I want us to know, and perhaps what you haven't seen before in this verse, maybe you have, I hadn't seen it until I was studying for this time, is the fact that there'll still be conflict while Jesus is reigning. 
It won't be 100% perfect peace. How do I know that? Well, look at that verse again. Look at what Jesus is doing. Verse 4, He shall judge between the nations. Were there perfect peace? There would be no need to judge. Because nobody would, would, there would be no need to come against, or because there, you understand what I'm saying? There would be no need to judge because of perfect peace. And he shall rebuke many people. So even in the millennial reign, there will be those that stand against what, who Jesus Christ is, but there'll never be need for war. Why is that? Because the authority of Jesus Christ will, care, will take care of all the issues. That when Jesus says, I rebuke you, just like he would say to a demon while he walked this earth, I rebuke you, just like he said to the storm, stop, that's the way it will happen in the millennial kingdom when anybody would stand against Jesus Christ. All he has to say, because his authority is perfect, is stop. There'll be no need for weaponry. They'll turn their, their, their swords into plowshares, into the plows and their spears into pruning hooks. So, in case you were wondering where to invest your money, I don't know if the money's going to transfer over to the Millennium Kingdom, but the futures are in agriculture, evidently. So invest in agriculture, because eventually everything is going to become, all of our defense, uh, you know, all the money we put toward defense is going to be turned toward agriculture at some point in the Millennial Kingdom. So the futures are in agriculture. Imagine the money saved. How much money does the, does the United States alone spend on their defense every year? I was listening to Chuck Smith. He taught this in the 80s. He said the, the nations of the world in the 80s, whatever year it was, 83, 84, spent $1 trillion on their defense in, the, in 1983. So what is it today? You know, the world's defenses are $10 trillion, $15 trillion? I don't know. Imagine all that money. No longer a need for defense. So verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. If, you, if you're a highlighting person, highlight that verse. Circle that verse. Star that verse. That's a good one. And that's one I want to say to us today. Let's take out house of Jacob. That's where the, the prophecy was given. Let's take that out and put our name in there. O Calvary Chapel Columbus, put your name in there. O Chris that's my name. But put your name in there. Oh, you. <laughs> Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. There's a day coming when Jesus is going to rule and reign with perfect authority. So why not today recognize that? Why not today stop walking in darkness and walk in his marvelous light? Why not with Psalm 109 verse, uh, no, so, yeah, 109 verse, uh, no, 119 verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Why not walk in that way? Why not study his word and follow his ways now? Oh, Jacob, the house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's walk in his ways, right? Ebenezer. 1 Samuel chapter 7, they raised the rock of Ebenezer. They were saying, God has taken care of us this far. That's the idea of Ebenezer. And when you understand that, and then you go watch the Christmas carol, it, it changes the story for you to understand the Ebenezer Scrooge and then to understand what the word Ebenezer means. It makes it completely different. 
But they raised a rock of remembrance there. And they said, God has taken care of us thus far. He will continue to take care of us. And that's what the plea is here in verse 5. Hey, let's remember, God has cared for us. And there's a day coming when he will rule with perfect authority. So why do we fret today? Why do we worry today? Consider all that is coming. We're going to sit at the feet of Jesus, and he's going to teach us his ways. Why worry? Verse 6, and here's where it kind of now shifts back to that judgment that God is speaking of in in the prophecy. He says, you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. So prior to this beautiful time, the millennial kingdom, when we're going to get rid of our defenses and we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus, there has to be a judgment that comes. And that's the sad truth is because without that judgment, there is no purification. And we have to walk through that judgment in order to be uh, for the purpose of correction so that we can enjoy uh, that, that millennial reign. It's an interesting line. God has forsaken the house of Jacob because they are filled with the Eastern ways. And you consider all the Eastern religions and pantheism and and all that, where where you see God in everything. If you ever saw the movie Avatar, that's that's the idea. That's pantheism. That's uh, you know, there's that tree is a god, and that person is a god, and that boat is a god, and that ice cream is a god, and whatever. And it's just it's it's ridiculous, but. The, the people of Israel were embracing those things. They were uh, imbibing in the, the um, Ashtra and, the, um, and, and, the, and, the, and Baal, and, and just they were selling themselves to other gods, and specifically Eastern religions. And as I considered that, I, I kind of started looking at the map and modern day Israel. And you know what's east of Jerusalem? Dubai. And you consider the way that Dubai is rising in popularity in our culture, in the, in the, in the eyes of the world. Dubai is going to have the, um, oh, I can't remember what it's called, the 2020 Expo. It's this huge thing. They're, 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 they're creating something like 275,000 jobs to prepare for this event in 2020. Um, the, the, the population of Dubai has doubled in the last five years. It's, and, and, and it's just, we, when we went, one of the times we went to Africa, we flew through Dubai and we were just in the airport. And it's, it's, it's this extravagance everywhere. You see the, the sheiks walking with their posses and all, all of them dressed in, in full white with the checkered hand, the bandanas and what have you. And, and you just see money everywhere in the, in the airport itself, they're selling, you know, $3,000 handbags and, and, and diamonds and, and jewels. And it's just this, it's this picture of opulence. It's the, the city itself. They have, uh, I was looking at one of the hotels. It's, it's been rated the best hotel in the world. I can't, it's, a, it's got a, an Arab name to it that I cannot remember. You can look it up if you're interested. 
They say it's the only seven-star hotel out there. And I was looking at the pictures, and it's just, it's the picture of opulence. You know, it's, it's um, the, the room rates start at $1,900 a night, plus $410 tax. So you're $2,500 a night for a base rate room. And, and it's just this, you know, and, and then they've got the, the largest tower there now. It's twice yeah. the size of the Empire State Building. Imagine that. What, how, Empire State Building is 108 stories. Is that right? I, I, it's, it's massive. You know, we were in New York a couple years ago. It's, the Empire State Building is huge. And this building in Dubai is twice the height. 800 meters, 2,400 feet. It's almost half a mile. Tall. And so you consider that to the east and, and the popularity of the city, and then read the next line, verse 7. Their land, speaking of to the east, their land is also full of silver and gold, and there, there is no end to their treasures. The land is also full of horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Now, it's interesting. In Dubai, I happened to be watching a car show recently. The cop cars in Dubai are Lamborghinis and Bugattis and Porsche 911s. And that's the cop cars because they have to chase these decked out cars. I mean, everybody over there, they're driving the $100,000, $800,000 cars. So they ha- their cop cars have to be able to race with them. So you read that, the, you know, their land is full of horses. Horse, horse power today is what we would consider. Yeah, the Porsche 918, it's a combination uh, electric and gas car, has 925 horsepower at just crazy speeds these days, crazy strength. So you read that, and it's just interesting. Their, their land is full of silver and gold. Now you would think Dubai got its money from oil, right? I mean, that's what you think of when you think of the Middle East. Everybody thinks, well, obviously they got rich on oil. And they did for a time have oil, but they've, uh, they've almost depleted their oil. Um, it's, they, they're saying by 2025, there will be no more oil under Dubai. Um, and so in the 60s and 70s, they did get a little bit of their money or most of their money from oil. But today, what they're actually growing on is capital investments on real estate. Um, somebody... somebody from Japan bought the hundredth floor of that tower that's twice as tall as the Empire State Building. I can't remember the name. $12 million for one floor of the building. You know, it's just, so there's just opulence, a ton of money, and, and, and the world is attracted to it. Uh, sadly, Israel will be as well. Their land is also full of idols, it says in verse 8. They worship the work of their own hands. Imagine all that they're building. And there's even issues about they're, 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 the people rail against Dubai because they're using slaves to build their buildings. That which their own fingers have made. And what God is doing here is He's likening the people of Israel to those of the Eastern religion. He's likening them to, to say, I can't tell the difference between you and these false religions anymore. There is no distinction. The people of God were not distinct from the people of the world. And God takes issue with that. And you know what? He still does today. We're called out 
We're called to be separate, a people different, a, a peculiar people is, is a term that the Bible would use. To be holy. The word holy itself means set apart. God calls us to that. I found a quote from Russell Moore. He's a very popular, um, very wise man. He says, a church that loses its distinctiveness is a church that has nothing distinctive with which to engage the culture. A worldly church is of no good to the world. And sadly, so many churches today, they want to water things down or amp up the entertainment value of their service so that they look like the world. And it's, we're not distinct. We're not calling the people of the world to anything different. We, we, we simplify and dumb down the gospel message so that it's not even the gospel anymore so that we don't offend people, but that's not calling them to a, a better thing. And so he says in verse 9, people bow down and each man humbles himself. Therefore do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty, speaking of the judgment that is going to come. And uh, well, in the Babylonian judgment, we certainly see the near decimation. If it weren't for the remnant, the, the, the place would be completely decimated. But speaking of the great tribulation that is to come, the judgment, the final judgment that is to come, in Revelation chapter 6, the language given here in verse 10 is, is very similar. And what we're going to see from verse 10 to 18 is that the judgment that God is going to bring is, is complete. He, he leaves no stone unturned. He's very thorough in his judgment. So it says in verse 11, the lofty, looks of, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And that's as it should be. God alone is worthy to be exalted. We are Right? That's what we studied in the book of James. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. We are to, we're to consider ourselves low. Don't, don't consider yourself more, more um, haughty than you are. Humility is having a proper perspective of ourself. We've said this several times over the past few weeks. With a proper perspective of ourself, we lack power and we lack knowledge. We don't have the strength and we don't have the know-how. And when we consider God how He is all-powerful and all-knowing, He alone is worthy to be exalted. So, you have a choice. You can bow your knee now. You can bow your heart now in adoration and praise of a glorious God. Or you can be forced to do it later. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the time is coming when the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. There's no question here. Upon the, all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan. Those, that's a, a reference to two false religions. And, and, and he's saying those will be brought low. 
upon all the high mountains, the powers of the world, and upon all the hills, those that are less powerful that are lifted up, upon every high tower and upon every fortified wall, upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all the beautiful sloops. Okay, you guys know what that means. All right. <laughs> I had to look that up. I didn't know. I'm like, sloops. I'm like, that's a misprint. <laughs> I think he means slopes, right? <laughs> or something. So I looked up sloops. It's a type of boat. Uh, it's a single mast boat. Huh. All right, learn something new. So it makes sense. The ships of Tarshish and the beautiful sloops, these boats, they're going to be brought low. Upon the loftiness of man, or sorry, verse 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Second time we've heard that. We struggle with pride. C.S. Lewis would say, at the root of all sin, every sin, no matter what it is, if you bear it down, you strip it down to the root of the sin, it's pride. It's that we would have the arrogance to stand against what God has said is wrong. And all of it will be brought low. No stone will be left unturned. The Lord alone, the only one worthy, will be exalted in that day. But the idols he shall utterly abolish. Does that mean there'll be some left? I think that's pretty plain, right? Utterly abolish. That's uh, completely wipe out, eradicate. No evidence left of. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake earth mightily. They're trying to flee the wrath of the Lamb. We learn that from Revelation chapter 6. It says in 6.15, very similar language. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So obviously Isaiah speaking of this time when the, when the great tribulation will go forth, Revelation chapters 5 and 6, 7. In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made, for himself to the moles and the bats. <laughs> Anybody take it. We'll give it to a rat. Whoever, whoever <laughs> wants these idols, they're welcome to it. Even though they've dumped thousands. Imagine the idea. We, we don't, you and I don't see a whole lot of idols today, do we? You don't go over to your neighbor's house and there's a gold image sitting there. But there might be a $100,000 car sitting there. or there might be something that they've poured their heart into that they value more than gold and more than God. And those are the idols of today. So they're giving up those things, those things which they worshiped to whoever wants to take it. Judgment will be complete. Judgment is for the purpose of purification it's setting the wrong right. It's letting everybody who's alive know that, the, that God is in authority and in control. So verse 21, 
to go to the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty. What an interesting combination from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. There was a um, time we lived in Wisconsin um, up until I was in third grade. And my, we had a decent amount of land. And so we had a few gardens, big gardens. We actually planted corn and we had a strawberry patch and rhubarb and green beans and all kinds of stuff. But that was, that was the mid-70s. I don't know if they had rototillers back then or if they were common. Either way, we didn't have one. And so the, the first job of the spring, as soon as the ground thawed after the long winter, was you went out with a wheelbarrow and you had a sifter. Anybody remember these things? They, it was just basically a, a square box that was maybe three feet by two feet of two by fours, like a square frame that you would take construction um, fencing, something with small little holes, and you would, you would set it on the wheelbarrow, and then you would dig up your dirt and throw it onto the sifter. And then what you would do is you'd get a decent amount of dirt in there, and then you and another person would sit there and shake it back and forth and back and forth, sifting out all the rocks and letting the good dirt fall through into the wheelbarrow. That was one of my jobs that I did with my dad every spring, and it was a, a very difficult and rigorous job it was it's an intense shaking right <laughs> for hours on end so when when he says he, the lord is going to shake the earth mightily i think of that sifting he's he's bringing out he's pulling out the impurities he's getting rid of the rocks he's he's getting getting so that the earth is is fine the the the, the soil is ripe or, or right for harvest that's his judgment. And then the last verse, this is the command in light of the judgment that's going to come against those that have turned their hearts to idols. He says in verse 22, sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? And that's the issue is we so often puff ourselves up that we think we are somebody, that we... We, we, we're important, we, we, and that's not the right attitude to have. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. It's not that the, you are not important, the Lord died for you, but that's what makes you important. And so when you see men puffed up with arrogance and pride, the command is to sever yourselves from such a man. And that severing Consider what it is. You're, you're cutting off. That's severing, right? You, you, it's, and I would think of it in this way. You're cutting off for the purpose or for the sake of health, right? You get rid of the gangrenous, gangrene arm. You cut it off in order to preserve the body, to, to maintain life. You get rid of the gangrene. So you sever the arm or the leg, for the sake of health. And that's the command that God is giving us. Be, be set apart. That's what this whole chapter is about. It's, got, it's a call to holiness. That God's people would be marked by His ways. That God's people would be drawn out and distinct from the world. 
That we would be, like the word holiness, again, it means to be set apart for the purposes of God. The first time the word holy is used in the scriptures, it's in reference to the instruments that were used in the temple. And, and he says, those are set apart. Those are holy. The bread of shofar, the altar, the table of, for bread, the, I can't remember what it was called now, but the instruments and those, all of the, the, um, the, the knives and the spoons and the things that they would use for the sacrifices and for the daily use of the temple. That's all that they were used for. They weren't used for common your, your, your barbecue over at your friend's house. They, you didn't just you know, drag the altar out back to have a, a barbecue with your friends. They were set, these instruments were set apart for a specific use. And that's what God is calling you and I to as well. Be set apart. Be distinct. Look different. It's okay. That's the way God wants us to be. So that when we call out to people and say, hey, Jesus is calling you because he loves you. He's calling you to a different life. A life that isn't centered around you or focused on you, but a life that is given in service to Him and in praise and adoration. Not a life of arrogance, but a life of humility. Not a a life of rising up the corporate ladder, but a life of lowering yourself and becoming less so that we might be servants. It's a call to holiness. The whole chapter is. Because there is a day coming when judgment will occur. And we thank Him for His grace because none of us are worthy of that day when we will sit and He will teach us His ways. It's only by the blood of Christ that we have that relationship that He's going to say as we make our pilgrimage to Jerusalem, hey, Calvary Chapel, Columbus, I'm glad you're here. Come on in. Let's look at the Word of God. Let me show you around. How glorious a day will that be? Amen? All right, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you're in control. So often, because we get our eyes off of you, our lives feel like they're out of control. But you're good and you're gracious. And you are in control of all things. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you for dying for us, Jesus, that we might have everlasting life, which includes that time when you will reign on this earth, that Jerusalem will become the capital of the world, and Jesus, you will have the ultimate authority, and we get to hang with you. How awesome, how glorious a day that will be. And I echo the words of John that would say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're ready to go home. This world is not our home. But if we would wake up tomorrow, I pray that we would remember that you've called us to holiness. You've called us to be distinct, a peculiar people in this world. And I pray that we would live differently, not arrogantly, not self-serving, but loving the way that you loved us. Teach us your ways, equip your saints, Be with us as we leave this place. Guide and direct us. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.